0: Let us pray. O God of life and love, You are full of grace and truth. Yes, Your mercies are new each day. Your grace abounds even to the chief of sinners. You, O God, are the architect and builder of creation. You do all things well, and all You have made reveals Your wisdom. You are the Savior from sin and death. When Your servant Job was in the midst of trial and suffering, he asked, If a man dies, shall he live again? And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, You have answered that question with a resounding yes. You have raised Your Son from the dead, and in union with Him, You will raise us into glory too, so that we might be renewed in Your service, so that we might live to Your glory and in Your glory for all eternity. We long, O Lord, for communion with You. Take away all the sins that ensnare and entangle us in our journey towards the new Jerusalem. And give us Yourself and Your gifts even today that we may know You, our God and Father, and the One You sent, Your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the working of Your Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and Giver of life, who pours Your love into our hearts. We give You thanks and praise. We honor and adore You, the God of all mercies, the God of our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, great God, You have conquered death through Your eternal Son, the Word made flesh. Your Son who entered into our humanity and into our history in order to win this victory, to trample Satan underfoot, and to rescue us from all that defiles and dehumanizes, and to bring us into Your glorious new creation. Father, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commanded his disciples to go and to preach, to preach the gospel to every creature. Father, may your gospel, this good news of Christ's victory, of his resurrection be preached today. May the gospel go forth with power. May the gospel run and be glorified. May your kingdom purposes be furthered here today in our lives and in the world. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. Over the last few years, I have been preaching through Mark's gospel off and on, uh, sometimes consistently, sometimes taking long breaks to preach other things. Uh, But today we're going to wrap up Mark's gospel for good. Now, that doesn't mean I'll never preach from a passage of Mark again, uh, but I probably won't do so anytime soon. Uh, And so today I sort of feel like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend. Uh, Mark has definitely become a friend, it feels like, as I've preached through this gospel. After today, you will have heard me, if you've been here for all those sermons, you will have heard me comment on every single verse in Mark's gospel. Now, some may wonder, why do it this way? Why preach in such detail? Why spend so long in one book, especially when there are all these other books of scripture to preach? Uh, And of course, before I did this with Mark, I did the same thing with 1 Corinthians. Uh, Spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, Certainly not every preacher needs to do things just the way I am doing them. There are a lot of faithful ways to preach God's word. But I've really got two answers to that question. Why spend so much time and go so deep? First, I really do think there is a lot to be gained from studying the text of Scripture in depth and in detail. If the Bible is really God's Word, if the Bible is really God's self-revelation to us, then certainly drilling down deeply into the Scriptures is good for us. Interfacing with the text of Scripture is really interfacing with God Himself. When we study God's Word, we're really studying God Himself. As we come to know God's Word more deeply, we're really coming to know God more deeply. If we want to know God deeply, we have to study the Scriptures deeply. And so in an age of shallow Christians, and I really think that's where we are, uh, broadly considered, in an age of shallow Christians, I think we need an in-depth, a deep study of Scripture. So that's part of the answer. But second, if you preach through any book of the Bible correctly, you really end up preaching the whole Bible anyway. That's what I've tried to do with Mark. Uh, I've really sought to preach the whole Bible through the lens of Mark's Gospel. And so if you have tracked with me during these sermons, during this lengthy series on Mark, you've actually gotten huge chunks of teaching on Isaiah and Proverbs and Genesis and Zechariah and Exodus and Malachi and the Psalms and Jeremiah and on and on I could go. Scripture interprets Scripture, which means also Scripture interprets preaches Scripture. I've been preaching on Mark, but you've really heard the whole rest of the Bible preached through my preaching on Mark, which is as it should be. We are whole Bible Christians. We want to immerse ourselves and be shaped by the whole Bible. The whole Bible has helped us understand Mark, and Mark has helped us understand the whole rest of the Bible. Uh, And I think that's how it should be. So let's turn to Mark one last time here. How does Mark bring his Gospel to a conclusion? How does Mark bring his Gospel to a grand finale, a fitting end? Everything in Mark 16, the short and the long ending, and I've read them both, we're looking at them both this morning, everything in the short and long ending screams, this is a new creation story. The resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. In the early verses of Mark 16, we find the women coming to the tomb. Now, why are they going to the tomb? I actually think if the disciples had been faithful, that is, if they had believed the words of Jesus as they should, all of them would have gone to the tomb in the wee hours of Sunday morning with champagne and confetti, ready to celebrate, ready to pop open the champagne, uncork the champagne, and celebrate as soon as Jesus comes out of the tomb. Because this is what Jesus had promised to do multiple times during His ministry. Instead, only a handful of women go to the tomb. None of the men do. And they take not champagne for a celebration, but spices to anoint a corpse. We see all of the disciples had failed. All of the disciples had failed to believe the words of Jesus. But a funny thing happened on the way to the tomb. Instead of finding a dead body they found an angel appearing as a man in white telling them, Jesus is risen. He's not here. The tomb is empty. Look at the place where He was lain. The angel delivers this resurrection message to them. But even that does not convince the women. They should have put that together with Jesus' promises and recognized, yes, it's happened, as He said. But no, they're confused and even terrified. And so what happens next? Jesus is going to have to appear to His disciples to convince them. The empty tomb is not enough. They have to see the resurrected Jesus in bodily form. And so Mary Magdalene becomes the first to see the risen Christ, the first eyewitness to the resurrection. And this is by design. Here is your new creation theme. What do you have here? Remember, Jesus was in a garden when He was crucified, in a garden when He was buried. Here's your new creation theme. You have a man, a woman, and a garden. We are right back in Genesis 2 and 3. The only thing missing is a serpent, a Satan figure, but Satan's not in the picture because Jesus has cast Satan out. The first thing we're told about Mary Magdalene here is that Jesus drove seven demons out of her. An army of seven demons were driven out of her. Jesus has driven Satan out of Mary Magdalene. He has exercised his garden. Satan is not going to spoil this new creation. He's been driven out and trampled underfoot for good. Well, Mary, of course, now uh, everything has changed for her. She goes to tell the others. The angel had given her the message back in verse 7. That should have been enough. It wasn't. Now she's seen the risen Christ. And so now she can do what the angel has said. Verse 7, go tell the disciples, even Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So Mary goes and tells the other disciples. And what happens? They don't believe. They won't accept her eyewitness testimony. And the problem here again is not just that they didn't believe Mary. Sometimes preachers will really focus in on the fact that a woman's testimony couldn't be trusted in the, in the ancient times and that kind of thing. I don't think that's the point at all. It's not that they didn't believe Mary. It's not even that they didn't believe the, the testimony of the angel standing behind Mary. The real problem here is they did not believe Jesus. That's the problem. Everything is happening just as Jesus had prophesied and they don't believe. See, it's not just doubting Mary's eyewitness testimony. It's rejecting what Jesus had prophesied multiple times even before His death. But Jesus is patient. And He's gracious. And to overcome their unbelief, He continues to appear to them. He shows Himself to progressively wider groups of disciples. So first you have Mary. Then you have two more walking on the way. Then the eleven. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that He eventually appeared to a group of 500 people at once. Mark then records for us these final instructions of Jesus. He's appeared to His disciples. He's convinced them of His resurrection. He now gives them their marching orders, their missionary mandate. It's Mark's version of the Great Commission. And the mark and form of the Great Commission is unique in some ways. Verse 15, Jesus says, go and preach the Gospel to every creature. So it's not going to be a message just for Jews. It will be for all nations. Again, they were slow to do that. But eventually, yes, the Gospel will go out to all nations, to every creature. Verse 16 uh, is about baptism. Those who believe and are baptized are saved. Our faith receives what God offers in the waters of baptism. What does God offer and give in baptism? Cleansing from sin, forgiveness, and the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, God pours these gifts out upon us. We're washed in Christ's blood, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. Of course, baptism doesn't do any of this automatically. Baptism without faith doesn't save. Baptism without faith just doubles over our condemnation. Jesus tells his disciples to go and baptize those who believe. Jesus tells his disciples that the mission of the church will include both word and sacrament. They are to preach and to baptize. Then in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says there will will be certain signs that accompany the ministry of the apostles. And this will be the proof that Jesus is with them, further proof Jesus is with them. In Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Jesus says explicitly, I will be with you to the end of the age. Mark's version of the Great Commission focuses on the signs that manifest the presence of Jesus with the disciples as they go. So you have these signs, things like exorcisms and tongues and healings, these miraculous deeds that confirm their words. If you really had to summarize what verses 17 and 18 are about, they're all about trampling Satan and his works underfoot. That's what these signs are, reversing the works of the devil bringing in new creation signs. These signs are proof that the church will share in Christ's victory over Satan. Jesus has trampled Satan underfoot. Paul says in Romans 16, the God of all peace will soon trample Satan under your feet as well. That happens in these signs. And then we come to Mark's account of the ascension. Jesus being received into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of God in verse 19. And here's where I really want to camp out and focus uh, for the time that we have this morning uh, because I think this is really, really important and really fitting as a finale, as a final conclusion to Mark's gospel. There are really two ways that I think the ascension works in Mark's gospel, two aspects to the ascension in Mark's gospel we need to recognize. It is a sacrifice finished and it is a journey completed. A sacrifice finished and a journey completed. Consider each one of these. A sacrifice finished. Mark has been telling us the story of Christ's sacrifice. Mark's been telling us the story of Jesus, especially from the perspective of Jesus as a new and greater David. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the new Davidic King. He will be seated on the throne of David forever forever. And he does what all good kings do. He fights the enemy on behalf of his people to rescue them from oppression and bondage, to set them free. In the Bible, royalty and sacrifice always go together. This is what kings do, good kings anyway. Kings die for their people. And that's what Jesus has come to do. As king, he's laid down his life for his bride. But that doesn't finish or complete His sacrificial work. The sacrifice Jesus offers is not complete when He dies on the cross. Nor is it even complete when He rises from the dead. His sacrificial work is finished in His ascension. And that's because of the biblical pattern of sacrifice that stands behind all of this. This is how sacrifice in the Bible works. Sacrifice in the Bible is not just death. It includes the new life and the glory that follow. Sacrifice is not just descent into death, it is also ascent into glory. Sacrifice includes both. There is definitely a sense in which Christ's ascension completes His sacrificial work. And indeed, what happened at the cross is incomplete without it. The problem we have, because we don't know, say, the book of Leviticus the way that we should... Uh, The problem we have is that we tend to, when we think of sacrifice, we tend to truncate it. We limit sacrifice to death, and so we think of Christ's cross as his sacrifice, and that's it. That exhausts it. But again, sacrifice is not just death. Just as there's more to our salvation than forgiveness, so there's more to sacrifice than just substitutionary death. And if you study Leviticus, you'll see this. Leviticus maps out sacrifice. It shows us how sacrifice works. Leviticus gives us all of these sacrificial rituals that Israel was to perform under the law. And if you look at those sacrificial rituals as they are laid out in Leviticus, as Leviticus maps them out, you will see they include not only death, but resurrection and ascension as well. Now, I'm certainly going to oversimplify this and just give you a thumbnail sketch of how this works, what we find in Leviticus as it lays out animal sacrifices. But this will help you understand what's happening here. The sacrifices in Leviticus really are a blueprint for Christ's work. And there are three movements in the sacrifices. There is sword, there is fire, and there is smoke remember those three things, and you'll have the basics of Levitical sacrifice, which really, again, stands behind the work of Christ. Sword, fire, and smoke. So if if you were living under the law in Old Covenant Israel and you were going to offer a sacrifice, what would you do? Sacrifice starts when the clean, sacrificial animal is set apart as a representative for the worshiper. He would lay his hands onto the animal to incorporate himself into the animal as it were. So now what happens to the animal will happen to him by proxy. And so now that this clean animal has been united with this dirty sinner, what must happen? The animal must die. The animal dies for the worshiper. Its throat is slit with a sword. The animal's blood is shed for cleansing. That death, of course, corresponds to the cross. The wages of sin is death. Shed blood covers sin. The animal goes under the knife. That's where sacrifice starts, and that corresponds to the cross. But there's more. The animal is then put on the altar and in the flames. The fire on the altar is the fire of God's Spirit which eats or consumes the sacrifice. The Holy Spirit is often represented by fire. Think of the flames that came upon the disciples at at Pentecost. I'm looking right now at a a Pentecost banner we have in this church that symbolizes the Holy Spirit with a flame of fire. Y'all can't see it, but I can. Looking this way, you'll see it in a few weeks when Pentecost gets here. That's the meaning of fire in the sacrificial system. It's not judgment. The animal's already been judged for sin. Death has already happened. What does the fire do? The fire transforms. It's a form of symbolic resurrection. It's not punishment. It's glory. It's transformation. And it corresponds to Christ's resurrection. The Spirit, again and again, Scripture tells us, the Spirit raised Christ. The fire of the Spirit came upon Jesus in the tomb and raised Him to new life. And that's what happens in the sacrificial system. The fire transforms the animal into something new. And then the book of Leviticus goes on to describe the animal ascending in smoke. So you've got sword, you've got fire, now you've got smoke. The animal ascends in smoke up into God's glory cloud as a sweet-smelling aroma that pleases God, It's pleasing to the Lord. Smoke is the final step in the sacrificial sequence. And smoke here has to do with God's glory cloud. The sacrificial process isn't over until the animal goes up to God. Until the animal goes up in smoke and up in glory. The glory cloud of God is made up of smoke from those sacrifices. That's how it works. Now some of that's counterintuitive because we may not know Leviticus as well as we should. But that's how the system works symbolically. So for Mark to tell us the story of Jesus as the story of sacrifice means he must do more than tell us the story of the cross. He must also tell us the story of resurrection and ascension as well. It's not just the cross. Resurrection and ascension have to be included. Jesus being raised up by the Spirit and going up like smoke, ascending into heaven, into the glory cloud of God to see it through to completion, to see the story through to completion, you can't stop with the cross. That whole sequence Jesus undergoes, the cross, resurrection, and ascension, they're all one piece. They all go together. You really can't break them apart. It's one unbreakable story of sacrifice for our salvation, for our glorification. Again, Jesus' sacrificial work is not complete until He has entered into glory until He's entered into the glory cloud of heaven, until He has returned to the Father who sent Him. He has moved through descent into death, into new resurrection life, and finally here ascends into glory in heaven above. He comes full circle. And that's how He accomplishes our salvation. Without the ascension, without the resurrection, His sacrifice is incomplete and we are still in our sins. Death is the beginning, not the end of sacrifice. Get that. We need to know that. And we need to know that not just so we have this full understanding of the gospel, but also so that we have a right understanding of the Christian life. Because this same sequence is true of us as well. Jesus offered Himself sacrificially. We're to offer ourselves sacrificially as well. Romans 12 says, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, what does it mean for us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God? We are in union with Jesus. And so this sequence is true of our lives as well. You know, we have a saying, As the Savior, so the saved. Those things Jesus went through, they happen to us as well. And again, we have a tendency to truncate the meaning of sacrifice here too. And if we do so, we will be greatly impoverished. Again, not just in our understanding of the Gospel and our salvation, but in our view of the Christian life. Just as Christ's ministry fulfills the Levitical sacrifices, so our lives are to follow that same pattern. Our lives are to follow the same Levitical pattern. The whole Christian life is sacrifice. There's no doubt about that. Again and again in the New Testament, the Christian life is described as sacrifice. We don't offer animal sacrifices when we come to worship because we offer ourselves in union with Christ. We offer ourselves to God. We are the sacrifices. But when you hear me say the Christian life is sacrifice, what do you think of? You probably think, okay, sacrifice. That means death. If the Christian life is sacrifice, that means I've got to... It's death to self. That's the shape of the Christian life. It means taking up my cross each day and putting my sinful, selfish self to death. And that's true. That's right at the heart of it. The Christian life is a cruciform life, but that's not the whole truth. It's also a resurrection life and an ascension life. Sacrifice includes all of that. See, every time you deny yourself and die to yourself, there is actually resurrection and ascension glory on the other side of that death to self. And we must not forget this. Sacrifice means you give yourself to God in service and God gives you glory in return. That's what sacrifice means. You give yourself to God in service and God gives you glory in return. Sacrifice always ends in glory. It's not over till glory is given. So you die. There's some incident in your household or at work or in your neighborhood and you die. You put your sinful, selfish self to death so you can serve others. What happens next? You've just died. What happens? God makes a new and better you come to life. A more glorious you. And that can happen a thousand times a day. You can grow in glory each day. You can move from glory to glory. Each new you is more glorious than the last. How many times can you die today? That's what Scripture calls us to. But every time you die, God raises you up. God exalts you. So do you want to be glorious? Of course you do. We we're made for glory. We all crave glory. Scripture says to us, Go be glorious, go pursue glory, go seek glory. Go seek your own glory. I mean that sounds contradictory to maybe some things we've learned even in the catechism, but there's a very real sense in which it's true. Pursue glory. But understand the way to enter glory, the way to rise to glory is to descend into death. Descent leads to ascent Making yourself a servant leads to glory. And Mark has shown us this in his Gospel again and again. Put your sinful, selfish self to death and a more glorious and more heavenly you will arise in its place. The whole Christian life is a series of deaths followed by resurrections and ascensions. And indeed, the more you die, the more you will really live the more glory you'll get. So interesting to me. You can look at this in all the Gospels. Every time in the Gospels, Jesus calls us to sacrificial living or to cruciform living, to die to self, to deny self, and to take up our crosses. You know what He goes on to do every single time? He always promises glory. Every single time. He never leaves us hanging. He never leaves us in doubt about what the outcome will be. He never leaves us in doubt about how things will go if we seek to practice sacrifice. He always promises reward, glorious reward on the other side. In fact, it's, it's so clear. C.S. Lewis says that really the problem we have is not that our desires are too strong. They're too weak. If we really desired glory, then we would see this is the way to get it. This is the way. Jesus calls us to a life of many Deaths. So we will grow into ever greater glory. This is the pattern. If you die, God will raise you up in new life. If you stoop down, God will lift you up. If you deny yourself, God will affirm you. If you pour yourself out, God will fill you up. That's the pattern again and again. Because that is the pattern of sacrifice. Sacrifice is not just death. It's also resurrection and ascension glory. Whatever you give will be matched and exceeded by what God gives back. God returns principle plus interest on every good work. Every kingdom investment we make always pays back 30, 60, 100 fold. Every gift given will be returned many times over by God. That's the pattern. That's the pattern of Christ's salvation. And the pattern of Christ's salvation is the shape of the Christian life. You are a priesthood. You are God's priesthood. Now offering yourselves as sacrificial victims and then receiving sacrificial glory in return. You give yourself to God in service. God gives you glory in return. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Uh, Eden, we know, was on a mountaintop because the river flowed down out of Eden. So in their expulsion, where did Adam and Eve go? They went down. God stationed cherubim with a sword of fire at the entrance. And that means the way back into God's presence is going to be through sword and flame. Again, the cherubim with a flaming sword. So the way back into God's presence is through sword and flame, but it's also upward. And of course, all of this was symbolized at the tabernacle where the animal was killed in the outer courts and then moved into the heavenly courts, getting closer and closer to God, moving upward as it were as it moves closer to the center of the tabernacle. That's the picture you have here. In Christ, we have passed through the sword. That's the cross. Our sins are forgiven. In Christ, we have passed through the flame. That's the Holy Spirit giving us new life. And in Christ, we move up the mountain. That's our ascension. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Christ's sacrifice reverses the original exile. In Christ, you have your re-entry into Eden, your re-entry into the sanctuary. This is your drawing near to God in glory. This is how the story ends for Jesus because it's how the story ends for His people. With Jesus going to God, being received by God, that's where we're headed as well. We're headed up. We're headed up to God, up to glory. That's our destiny. But there's another aspect to this, to the ascension in Mark. Uh, Ascension in Mark 16.19 also means a journey completed. It's a sacrifice fulfilled, but it's also a journey completed. And we need to consider this as well. There are two key terms in Mark's Gospel we need to know. See, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is always on the go. He is a man on the move. And there are two key terms that show us this in Mark's Gospel. There is the term immediately, which shows up again and again in Mark's Gospel to describe Jesus' movements. It's it's not just that Mark is telling us a fast-paced version of the Gospel story, though it's certainly true that Mark's Gospel has a relentless pace. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that Mark doesn't want you to get bored, so he's keeping the story moving. Forty times, perhaps even a few more than that, 40 times Mark tells us Jesus acted immediately. Eleven times in the first chapter alone he tells us Jesus acted immediately. Verse 10, immediately he came up out of the water after his baptism. That's verse 10. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Uh, Verses 19 and 20, uh, he he sees James and John and immediately he calls them to become his disciples. Uh, Verse 21, uh, on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue immediately and began teaching. Uh, Verse 29, when they came out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of uh, Simon immediately. Uh, Later in that chapter, uh, he came to uh, take Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and immediately the fever left her. Immediately he drove the fever out. Again and again, just right off the bat here in Mark's Gospel, you see Jesus is a man of action. There is a sense of urgency. Jesus is clearly a man on a mission. There is an immediacy, an urgency to his action. He must be about his father's business. He has places to go, people to see, things to do. What is Mark doing? He's showing us Jesus is a man on the war path. He is the holy warrior. Indeed, this is the particular focus Mark gives us on Jesus' work. He presents Jesus as the warrior king, as the new David, going forth, conquering, and to conquer. Mark's gospel is the holy war gospel. Indeed, this is fitting because Mark's own name derives from the word Mars, who was the Greek god of war. Mark was well-suited to write this version of the gospel, the militant gospel, the military gospel, Jesus as the armed man, as the, 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 the battle-tested soldier, the general leading his troops into battle. This is the militant gospel. It's power-packed. It's action-packed. It shows Jesus as the wonder-working warrior. Jesus comes in this gospel roaring through Israel. Ripping up Satan's kingdom and establishing his own kingdom in his place as he immediately defeats his enemies, as he immediately moves here and moves there to conquer. That word immediately is a key and it's a unique feature in Mark's gospel. Other gospels don't have that in the same way. But there's another key term in Mark's gospel. The key term, the way. Jesus in Mark's Gospel is on the way. Again and again in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is on the way or on the road. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is on the way. Jesus is on the way. He's on the way somewhere. Where is he going? Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 describe the way of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 23 says He made His way on the Sabbath. Chapter 8, verse 27 says He's on the way with His disciples. Chapter 9, verse 33, He asks His disciples what they were discussing on the way. Chapter 10, verse 32, we find He's on the way to Jerusalem where He will be crucified. Verse 46 of chapter 10, there is a blind man alongside the way. Again and again... Jesus is described as being on the way. Well, what is the way? Well, certainly it's the way of the new Exodus from Isaiah. That's there in the opening verses of Mark's Gospel. It's the way of wisdom from Proverbs. It's the kingly way, the royal way, the way of wisdom. But it is especially the way of the cross. That is where the way leads. But just as the sacrifice, the the, the theme of sacrifice, does not terminate on the cross, so it is with the way. It's not as though Jesus is making His way to the cross and then when He arrives at the cross at Galgotha, that's it. That's a dead end. That's where it all stops. No, that is not the end of the way. When He rises from the dead, what does the angel say about Him? It appears He's back on the way. He's on the move again. That's what the angel says. Jesus is arisen and He's on the move. He's on the way. The angel says in verse 7 Go tell the other disciples and go to Galilee. Why go to Galilee? Jesus is going before you. See, he's on the way. He's blazing a trail to Galilee and he will meet you there. Jesus is on the way to Galilee. But Galilee, of course, is not his final destination either. Verse 19 goes on to tell us he was received into heaven, he goes up. To heaven, he is received into heaven and sits down at God's right hand. Where is this way he's been on ultimately leading? Well, here, it leads to heaven. It leads to glory. It leads to the Father's right hand. His journey is finally complete in the ascension. Mark's whole Gospel has been a travelogue. He's given us Jesus' itinerary as He moves on the way, immediately going here and immediately going there. But now finally, Jesus has arrived at His destination at the Father's right hand. In Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, we're told that the heavens were torn open. And out of that tear in the heavens, the Father spoke and the Spirit descended. You had a voice and a dove. At the cross in Mark 15, when Jesus died as He breathed His last... The veil in the temple corresponding to heaven was torn. Again, a sign of heaven being opened. Why is Mark telling us a story, really bookending his story with heaven being open? At his baptism and then at his cross, the sky is torn open. What purpose could that tear in the heavens serve? Why is heaven opening up? Well, now finally... We know Mark 16.19 tells us heaven was torn open so that Jesus could have a passageway from earth to heaven. Because Jesus is going to heaven. The doorway to heaven must be opened. Heaven has been torn open in His baptism and in His death so He can move into heaven and take up residence seated at the right hand of God. And He is now seated there at God's right hand, ruling over all creation and interceding for His people. His session at His Father's right hand fulfills the prophecies of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. When Jesus was on trial back in Mark 14, He told the high priest, He said that He would ascend and be seated at the right hand of the power of on high, and He would come on the clouds of heaven in glory. That is now happening. He has ridden the glory cloud into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the power on high. That's where His journey was headed. But you know, there's a sense in which even that is not quite the end of His journey. Because just before He ascends, He says to His disciples, Go. Go into all the creation and proclaim the Gospel. And when you baptize and when you do these, miracle, these these miraculous works, that will be the proof, in a sense he's saying, that I am with you. So yes, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That's where His way was leading. But there's also a sense in which He is with us as we go. See, when Jesus says to His disciples, go, He's really saying, look, immediately go on the way. Immediately go on the way. You've got a journey to take as well. A journey to all the nations preaching this Gospel. And what's going to happen as they go immediately on the way? Again, passages like Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 will be fulfilled. Those kinds of prophecies that Jesus has alluded to so many times fill in the picture for us. So Daniel 7, which pictures Jesus ascending to heaven on the cloud of heaven, also pictures Him then as the new Adam, the Son of Man, at God's right hand, seated at the the right hand of God, subduing the beastly Gentile empires. The Gentile empires are represented as beasts. Jesus is the new Adam who domesticates them, who tames them, who has dominion over them. Or Psalm 110, we read it as our call to worship this morning. It shows... Jesus as God's anointed and appointed King, the true and greater David, the new and greater David who overcomes and subdues His enemies, who makes them into a footstool for His feet. says that His volunteers, that is His his soldiers, His servants, will be willing in the day of His power. He will make them willing by His Spirit. And that psalm ends with dead bodies piling up. It shows His conquest, His conquering of the nations. That's what's going to happen as the disciples go. The kingdom of Christ is going to advance. As we go on the way, immediately, Jesus fulfills these kingdom prophecies. so important to understand this. Uh, I think American Christians, I think we just don't understand the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ. There are a lot of Christians who think, yeah, Jesus will become king someday. Maybe when He returns to set up a millennial kingdom, then we'll say He's king. Or maybe in His final coming, that's when He'll be hailed as king. No. The ascension shows us He reigns right now. The kingdom is here. And so as we go out immediately with a sense of urgency on the way, the way of mission, we know that He's with us. As verse 20 says, He's accompanying us. He's going with us. Advancing His kingdom through us. He reigns right now. Jesus is king this very moment. Jesus has taken charge. He's taken hold of the reins of history to steer it where where He will. All authority is His. Jesus is running the show. Jesus is not just a character in the story of world history. He's the author and director of that story. And for that reason, we need not fear. Because our own flesh and blood is seated at God's right hand in glory. And where He is, we will be too. And indeed, even in some sense, we are already there now. Our way as we go on this way will lead to the same glory Jesus has right now. Jesus is ruling and directing all of history for our good and for the good of the gospel. Everything fulfills His purposes. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe. Jesus looks at the whole creation and says, it is Mine, every square inch of it. And there is no greater comfort for us than this. No greater comfort than Christ's ascension because He has completed His journey back to the Father we will too. All the promises, all the prophecies are yes and amen in Christ. He is with us as we go. He is with us in our mission. As we go immediately on the way of mission, He accompanies us. Indeed, you could say His way continues in mission. Our mission is a continuation of His. And this means the victory of the church is sure. You know, they say death and taxes are the only sure things. No, in reality, the surest thing of all is the victory of Christ and his church. It is the surest thing. Even death's going to be defeated in the end. <laughs> yes, we'll all die, but death will be defeated. I would say it is now impossible to be a pessimist. Yeah, perhaps you could be a pessimist about things short term, but you cannot be a pessimist about the big picture long term. Prospects for the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about how should the church engage our culture? How can the church effectively engage our culture? And there's a lot of pastors and theologians who talk a lot about different strategies and tactics that the church should use to reach our culture as it seems to be turning away from God into godlessness, into idolatry more and more. It's interesting that when Mark ends his gospel this way. He doesn't end by giving the church some kind of strategy or tactics to use in this mission as we go on our way. And that's because we really don't need them in the end. What we need is the message of the angel. What did the angel say? Do not fear. What is the most important tactic, the most important strategy the church has in her mission as she goes on the way? It is courage. Courage to face those who oppose God's truth. Courage to proclaim God's truth fully and faithfully. The message of the angel at the tomb is the message to us today. Do not fear. Do not fear. Christ is risen. And yes, now we can add, Christ is ascended. Do not fear. The flip side of that is be strong and courageous. Because you've got enemies to conquer. You've got a world to conquer to conquer. So go. Go immediately in this way. The way of mission. Christ is crucified, raised, and ascended. His sacrifice is complete. His journey is complete. And that means His mission to transform the whole creation into His kingdom will be completed as well. That's our hope. Amen. Let's, let's give thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that Christ has been through the sword, He's been through the fire, He's become smoke. Father, we thank You that He has fulfilled the whole sacrificial pattern of dying for us, being transformed in His resurrection by the Spirit, and now ascending to Your right hand in glory where He rules over all and, yes, intercedes for us, presenting Himself for us on our behalf. In your presence, O oh, Father, we thank you for this, we thank you for our whole salvation as it is found in Christ Jesus. And now as we go on our way, as we go out from here on our way today, may Christ be with us. May He fill our lives with signposts of new creation, with signs that point to this new creation, this kingdom He's ushered in. May you fill us with love, joy and peace. May we not fear. May we be full of courage and boldness because we know Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We know Christ has entered into glory and You are glorifying us as well. This we pray, giving You thanks and praise in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen.